I like to do this thing where I get halfway through a book series like Romans, and then I like to start a sub-series like I did with Romans 7 and 8, and then I like to get halfway through that, and then I like to start a whole new series and then come back to that series. Um, and that's what we're, we're going to do. Uh, obviously, uh, we just got back from our trip, and we got to experience some pretty cool stuff on that. And so uh, people were asking, hey, are you going to... You gonna share with us? You gonna share a slideshow or whatever? And I thought the <laughs> I thought the best way to uh, to share was just through a few messages. Um, and so that's that's what we're gonna do. Uh, uh, have some messages that we're gonna highlight a few of the biblical stories. Actually, on our trip, we really hung out in uh, uh, two chapters of Acts, Acts seventeen and eighteen. We're actually gonna get out of those two. There were some other things there too, but. Uh, Acts 17 and 18, we actually did a lot. We visited a lot of the places that Paul was at in those two chapters. So that's where we're going to be this, this morning. If you turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 15 through 34. So in Athens, Paul encounters this inscription that is written to the unknown God. It's this altar to the unknown God. And his experience, it teaches us a lot about God's desire to be known, um, his experience with the Athenian people. And uh, I think we also learn from this is, um, is that we have a role as the church in making that happen. And so let's take a look at that this morning. Paul is, Sean, I don't have my clicker. I think I'm going to need it. Do you, have you seen it? Thanks, buddy. Make, you want to make sure it's working? Yeah. Is it working? Is it good? Okay. It's one of those mornings. Is it because... No, but he did it. Are you clicked on the thing? Is it not the dongles? Is it losing distance? It's called a dongle, right? No. Sean. Um, I guess I'll just ask y'all to do. I'll do it. Do it. Go back. Yeah, we'll figure it out later. Um, so the Apostle Paul, he went on three missionary journeys uh, that we know of during his life, lifetime. It, it, at least in the book of Acts, there's three missionary journeys uh, that he goes on. Um, and then his final journey is, is uh, he gets arrested and he's taken to, to Rome that we read about in Acts. Uh, this takes place, our story this morning takes place in his second missionary Journey. So Paul had left from Antioch, that seemed to be his hub, um, and he goes through and up towards Turkey. And he, his plan was to go through, um, I think my little clicker thing will work. No, it doesn't work on the screen. Um, his plan was to go into what's called Asia Minor, it's West Turkey. Right there, and, you, and all those churches that you see in the book of Revelation, Philadelphia, Sardis, Smyrna, uh, Laodicea, 
Um, his plan was to go into that area, that region, but the Holy Spirit appeared to him and wouldn't let him go that way. For one reason or another, we're not sure. But he did see a vision of a man in uh, Macedonia saying, hey, come, we, we need you. <laughs> come, come speak to us. So Holy Spirit, God was leading him in a, in a different direction. And so Macedonia, it's actually now it's uh, northern Greece, but he ends up going to places like uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, you're familiar with the, um, uh, the letter, uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And he preaches there. Uh, the Jews in the town get stirred up. They're causing him all kinds of trouble and, and uh, um, harassing him and persecuting him. And he ends up, then he goes to Berea and he, he, he finds some, uh, some success in Berea because these people are actually interested in what he has to say. And not only that, but they actually start looking up. You know, they go back and check the scriptures and make sure that what he's saying, it's like a preacher's dream. We love, we love that is when you guys actually go and, and look up and see if what we have to say is um, is uh, is correct, because that means you're you're looking, you're studying, you're seeking yourselves. And then he goes from uh, Berea, and he ends up in in uh, Athens. And um, I don't think it was his original plan to to go uh, to Athens, but he was taken he was taken to Athens. And um, that's where we pick up in our story here. Verse 15, those who conducted Paul, they brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they were a team. They were working together. And he had left them in one place, and now he's calling them to, to join up with him. Verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Go to the next slide. Um, yeah, there we go. So that's the Parthenon. And yeah, that's one of the cool places that we, we got to visit in Athens. And the Parthenon is, um, it is the symbol of power and wealth and, and the elevated culture uh, that we see in, in Athens. It was a big, big uh, status symbol. And it was full of gods. And there's other smaller temples uh, within the Parthenon. Uh, we saw like the, the temple to Nike. Um, but there was statues of Poseidon and Zeus. And not all that's still standing now. In different parts of Athens, you see these statues. But you can just imagine as Paul uh, uh, walked around, there was the 12 Greek gods. But then now, since Rome had taken over, there had been uh, the god of uh, uh, Roma. They had their own god. Uh, maybe even like the first emperor, Caesar Augustus. Uh, he saw, saw himself as son of the divine. You know, the Caesars often saw themselves as God and gods, and they would have statues erected, and people would have to um, uh, look to them and worship them as, as Lord. And so Paul is walking around, and he sees all of these gods, and he's troubled. Like, he's disturbed by this. Um, it's been said that it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. You know, I think we don't have, you know, we, we still have these, you know, we have what? There's three monotheistic uh, religions, um, major monotheistic religions. And then we've got uh, polytheism, Hindu. Uh, Hinduism is an example of polytheism. We've got all kinds of new age uh, cults and, and so forth. But for the most part, in, in our age of enlightenment, a lot of people... Um, 
are just agnostic, you know, or, or atheist, right? And so we don't have, we certainly don't have a lot of, especially in our culture, we don't have these statues that are erected that we worship. And so in that sense, we don't have that, that, that same context. But when we look at the world around us, um, the devil doesn't need, <laughs> he doesn't need, you know, statues made of wood and stone. Uh, he's got the God of self, right? If he can get us to turn uh, our attention and our focus and our hearts to ourselves, it gets our attention and our focus off of, off of God. And so I think that's the main God that we, that we battle in our world today. Let me ask you, when you look around, do you ever look around at the world around us in our context, in our culture, and are you ever deeply distressed and troubled? You see, Paul is anxious, and I don't think anxiety itself isn't a bad or good thing. It just is. Now, there's bad forms of anxiety like worrying and, and the things that it pushes us to do. But, but even Jesus, at times, he had, he had anxiety. He was, he was troubled, right, at times. He was stressed when he was going to the cross. And so, Paul, uh, this is a good thing. He is troubled by what he sees around him. He's deeply distressed. We should be distressed when we look at the world around us. The problem is, is either A, you know, we don't care, right? Or, or we react in unhealthy, unhealthy ways. I remember um, years and years ago, um, I got to go uh, to South Padre Island uh, during spring break to join up and learn about what this group of college kids, there was college kids from all over the state of Texas, and they would come, they come, they still come together to this day in South Padre Island, and they minister to the party goers, to the spring breakers, and they do it in such a cool way that they, they serve them, right? Yeah, they serve pancakes, they do that in the morning, but then also at 2 a.m. when all the bars let out, they they have pancakes ready for them too. You know, they're coming out drunk or whatever. Um, they hand out cards on the beach during the day. They would hand out cards that would say, hey, if, you, if you're drinking, don't drive. Call us and we'll come pick you up. They had this whole system of vans. Everybody, you know, all the, the Christian uh, kids who were driving the vans, they would decorate and name their vans and all that kind of stuff. And we had a central hub in this one church where everybody's on the phone and stuff like that. And and there was even a Twitter feed about, hey, pray for so-and-so, pray for so-and-so. And they would go and pick them up. And then when they pick them up, they just have conversations with them, right? And, and talk to them uh, about, about the Lord. Um, I remember coming back from that. And with some people, when I would tell them the, you know, how cool of an experience it was ministering to them, uh, some people, it felt like they had this, this, this look about them. It was like, why, why are you out there just bothering kids that are, that are having fun, you know, that are just in, enjoying uh, themselves. And so even as Christians, we can get, get so caught up in, in, in the world. Remember, Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. You know, we've got to be careful being in, in the world and also of the world to where nothing around us bothers us, right? And it's not that they're just having a good time. If there is, you know, just having a good time, but these kids, they're, uh, do you know how many, how, what the statistics are of, of um, the rape culture and spring break in these places where these things are happening, you know, and uh, they're just big drunk uh, fests going on. But the thing is, is, is the way they would approach this is it was in such a loving way that the people 
the spring breakers loved having these, these, uh, these other college kids who were there ministering to them and picking them up and feeding them um, pancakes and, and so forth. The other way that we can react, though, to the world around us is very unhealthy ways, and I experienced that on the same trip. Uh, there was these guys also on the beach, and they had megaphones, and they were yelling at the, at the spring break kids and just telling them they were all going to hell. And you can imagine the reaction that they had to them, right? Some of them were yelling back at them, you know, and they'd be getting in these, you know, fighting matches, these arguing matches. And, uh, but God used it, though, because they would leave, and then the kids we were with would just walk over with the card and say, hey, don't listen to them. Uh, come talk to us, you know, or if, if you need a ride later, you know, we're there to, to pick you up. The point is, some people overreact, some people don't care, but God has called us as believers. We're not all Apostle Pauls, right? We're not all Peters. He's called all of us to engage the world. We're all called to engage the world around us. Y'all have heard me say it before. That is the reason that we're still here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 20, uh, Paul says that pagans, when they worship these idols, he wasn't just bothered because, um, because of these statues that he saw around him. He says that when they worship these idols, they are ignorantly worshiping demons, right? And when we see the Bible talk about, you know, even sarcastically in the Old Testament about uh, there's this whole story in Isaiah where this guy is taking this block of wood and he's cutting a little bit off of it and he throws some in the fire and he cooks his food over the fire and then the rest of the block of the wood he he makes into an idol, and then he sets it up and he bows down to it, and basically God is saying through Isaiah, how stupid is that? What are you doing? (laughs) This is ridiculous. So we see that. There's these worthless idols, and you see God talking about these idols of being worthless, and and really there is no other God, right? There's only one true God, but there are demonic spirits behind those those gods that are worshipped. That's even acknowledged by Moses in Deuteronomy and in the Old Testament as well. Paul says that they are ignorantly sacrificing to demons. Ephesians 6.12, he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So let that provoke you. Let that disturb you. Let that make you feel um, uneasy. Again, we might not have these statues erected that we bow down and worship, but these spiritual forces are at work in our culture as well to draw us away from worship to God. Verse 17. So Paul, he reasoned in the synagogues, you know, so he looks around and he's disturbed. And then so he goes into the synagogue and begins to reason there. Well, that's interesting because in the synagogue would be Jews. So he's disturbed by the Athenians. So why does he go to the Jews first? Well, that was Paul's, that was Paul's pattern. Um, the, the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. It wasn't because God loved the Jews more than the Gentiles. The blessing to Abraham that was promised to Abraham through you all nations would be blessed was to be fulfilled through the Jewish people. It's why God chose, or not God, Jesus, well, Jesus, you know, he chose 12 disciples uh, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. He chose Jews first. And if you notice, when you read the gospel, he's going to the Jews only, and it's through them that the gospel would be spread. And so 
Paul made it a habit everywhere he went, even into these Gentile parts of the world, because there were Jews everywhere, he would go to the synagogue first, and he would minister to them. But not only them, he went there first, and he he reasoned with the Jews and with the devout persons, um, or maybe your translation says God-fearers. Um, those were God-fearing Gentiles who were curious about what Paul had had to say. So they were um, they were God they were Gentiles who worshipped the Jewish God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. And so he reasoned with them and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, this is an interesting group. You got the Epicureans and the, the Stoics. The Epicureans, they, um, they believed in the, the gods, right? But they believed that they were um, not involved with us. Kind of like, y'all have heard of deists? Like deists believe that God is not concerned with our affairs, right? He just kind of set the world into motion and he just lets it be. And so they believed in this plurality of, of the gods, um, but they were distant. They weren't really concerned with us down on earth. And so we really didn't have to, uh, we really didn't have to worry about these gods, right? We didn't have to worry about them. They also didn't believe in life after death. So this life was, was just it. For some reason, the gods are up there. <laughs> they created the world, but they're not concerned with it. And, and there is no life after death. There's certainly no resurrection. Um, and so the goal is just to seek a good, pain-free life. And so that was, they were really focused on living a pain-free uh, life. You know, you hear of um, hedonists that seek pleasure, right? Pleasure and everything. Well, sort of like hedonists, but they didn't believe in, if, if, if you sought pleasure too much and things, they, 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 saw, they understood addictions and stuff like that or in, overindulging and stuff, and so they tried to embol, um, um, not get involved in that kind of stuff. The idea was not so much the seeking of pleasure, but just living a life that was comfortable and, and uh, pain, pain-free. And so the idea of not having a God today would be similar, kind of like uh, you only live once, but without all the hedonism, right? Kind of like agnostics, you know? Of course, they acknowledged that there was gods, but like the deists, they, they really weren't concerned with our affairs. And so that's the Epicureans. They were there talking with Paul, right? They were there uh, in Athens um, talking with Paul. And there was also the Stoics. Now, the Stoics, on the other hand, they believed in this divinity, but it was like a life force, um, you might you, you see uh, in the Gospel of John talks about the logos, the word becoming man. That word logos it also means uh, um, uh, reasoning or rationale, you know. But to them, it was like this this force that was in each human being. It was very impersonal. It was not a personal God like we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Each person had that, and so it was like a force that could be harnessed. Think Star Wars, like the Jedi or whatever, but we all had this force that we could harness that was in impersonal. So very much like a lot of New Age uh, teaching today. In fact, people have taken the Bible and the teachings of Jesus, and they have skewed it, and they teach that everybody has this Christ force in us, and you know the whole Messiah is not even what we recognize as the Messiah of the Bible. It's taking these New Age uh, concept, borrowing from these different... Uh, religions and mixing them together. Um, and um, 
So in, in another way, the Stoics were like the pantheists in that um, not that they believed in, in a multitude of gods, but in, in that God was not, he didn't just create everything, he was everything. He was in all. You know, you hear people talking about how we're all connected and, and stuff like that. It would be similar with the way they, they viewed things. And then there were some, possibly from this group, that said, uh, you know, what does this babbler Paul have to say? What's he, what's he talking about? And that, that, word, that word babbler in the Greek, it means, um, it's actually the word spermologos. Spermologos, one who picks up seeds. You see, not to be graphic, but that word sperm in there, that means seed. You can make the correlation there. And it's one who, kind of like, a, they, they were looking at Paul as like a, a bird or a chicken who goes around and just pecks at seeds and just picks up things um, here and there. Um, or word scatterer. Maybe your translation might say even word scatterer. Um, it's like people today who just borrow ideas from different things. You know, a lot of people have uh, their own their own beliefs today, and it's not necessarily Christian, it's not necessarily Hindu, it's not necessarily Buddhist. They just borrow whatever ideas they, they like, right? And they can just kind of form their own, their own faith system. And so they were looking at Paul and what he was teaching, and they were like, ah, is this, what's this guy just like picking up things, you know? And, and what's this babbler? What's he talking about? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So is he preaching this other, other God? You know, and what's this resurrection all about? That would have been a very foreign concept to them. Some have even suggested that the word resurrection, the Greek, sounded like another God's name. So that you know, Paul might have been preaching Jesus and this other God. I don't know if that's true or not, but Jesus was definitely foreign uh, to them in this idea of resurrection. So what's he doing preaching these foreign divinities? And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Go to the next slide. So the Areopagus, uh, and in Roman times it was called Mars Hill. It was the uh, court authority over civil, moral, and religious matters in Athens. That was the place where they held council. And that right there is, is uh, what's left of, that's Mars Hill. Um, go to the next slide. Oh, that's, uh, um, I got to lead a devotional out beside Mars Hill, so we're there uh, kind of praying and, and uh, sharing the word together. Go to the next one. Um, so on the left, that's the old stairway. We're not allowed to use that stairway. Very, very slippery. Um, but the original stairway up to the top of Mars Hill is still there. On the right, you know what that is? That's the passage we're reading today. Yeah, in Greek. That's pretty cool, huh? All right, go to the next one. That's an ancient trash can I found. Um, <laughs> so there's... There I am on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. That's the same, same thing, Areopagus, Mars Hill. Joseph took this picture of me. That's the city. That's the uh, city of, of Athens. So that's one side. Go to the next one. And then that's me and Zane with his hair all on his face. Um, and <laughs> behind us is the Parthenon. And I think on the far right, I think that's the Temple of Nike. Um, but... So you can see that that was within viewing distance. So when you're standing on Mars Hill, you can see this big Parthenon in the, in the background. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's where we're at in our uh, passage this morning. It was the center of Greek culture. 
Is there another one or is that it? That's it? All right. So they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus or Mars Hill saying, we know that this new teaching, may we know rather, help us to know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in, uh, in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. So they thought Paul was a babbler. They thought he was borrowing different ideas. So they weren't all about just like borrowing and making up stuff, but they were totally into hearing something new. They love to hear, yeah, tell us what new philosophy you got. You got something new? And so they would spend all of their time just discussing and having these big intellectual conversations about the gods and about philosophy and, and so forth. Um, and these were, like, these were the guys with the Harvard sweater vests, right? And the, you know, in the... Ivy League. Right, the, the, the Ivy League. They would have their sweater tied around their neck or around their, their waist. There you go, babe. And though they are curious, this isn't just a simple curiosity. They are very curious in what Paul has to say, but in a way, he's also on trial. That's why they bring him to the Areopagus. Like, all right, let's come talk to the officials. Let's talk about this. Tell us about this this new God that you want. Let's see if he fits in, right? Because uh, I believe that they would have been okay with uh, Jesus introducing something like that as long, kind of like Hindus today. Like, if you go preach... Um, Jesus to Hindus, amen. You can come, they'll, they'll invite you, you can come and pray in Jesus' name with them. We used to have a, a sweet little neighbor that we would pray with her, and we could pray in Jesus' name all we want. And she would come and ask us to pray over her. But the problem is, is like, it's, it's not a threat until you tell them that their gods are false and, and God commands us to do away with those gods. You see what I mean? He could be included with their gods, but, and it was the same same way here, you know, he might be accepted. Let's hear more about this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said to them, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. If you had the King James Version, it may say, I perceive that you are too superstitious. Almost every other version says very religious, including the new King James Version also says very religious. And the reason is, is Paul is very unlikely to insult them right off the bat. And in fact, that word implies, it can, it can imply superstitious, but it can just imply that acknowledging that somebody is, is religious. I tend to lean that way too. I don't think Paul just stood up there and right off the bat, I perceive you guys, I was looking around at all these gods and you guys are way too superstitious. That would not have been, you know, that would not have been the good way uh, to go. Paul seeks to understand his audience, right? He looked around at the, the culture around him. He observed their gods, and, uh, and he acknowledged, hey, he found some middle ground. I see that you're, you're very, very religious. What can we learn from that? Like, I, think it's, I think it's important, right? We certainly don't want to compromise, but to be able to listen to people and to hear them out, right? And in Paul, in this case, he's even finding common ground. He's like, okay, you're religious, I'm religious, I can see that we got this common ground. He's not compromising. He's not saying, hey, all your gods are cool. You know, they're just like us. All religions are the same. You know, Paul's not saying that, right? But he's, he's, he's finding some common ground. I think that's important for us 
uh, two, when we're ministering to people that we love and care about, or even people we don't know, is to is to understand um, what they believe, right? Because if not, we just we look like a bunch of know-it-alls, and actually we look stupid, we look ignorant. We go in and we want to proclaim how our faith is right, and we don't know anything <laughs> about what they believe, and we make a lot of stupid assumptions. So Paul, he understood. He understood them and he sought to understand them. He found some common ground. I can see that you're very religious. And then he says in verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found the altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, what's this, this inscription to the unknown God? Could it be to foreign gods? Because there has been some altars that were found that would say to the God of uh, the Asians, the Europeans and the Africans, um, it's also been speculated that it might be to the God of, of Israel. Maybe they heard, you know, a lot of cultures had heard about this God of Israel and how he delivered them from Egypt. You know, they had heard the stories. Or it could be just like a God that's it's impossible to know anything about. Another, um, another theory is that it was the God of Socrates. He was a monotheist. And so it was to Socrates' God. And then uh, a last... Um, um, theory uh, that I've seen is there was uh, this big pestilence in Athens at one time, and none of the gods were delivering them from this pestilence. And um, so they um, prayed to this unknown God and made sacrifices to him, and the pestilence lifted. And so this is where the unknown God, this God that they don't know anything about. And so maybe that's a possibility. But regardless, there's this altar to the unknown God and check out what Paul does. Check out the springboard. He says, For I passed along, observed these objects of your worship, I found this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So now he's getting into the gospel. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Yeah, yeah even the Jewish temple, Right? That's what's revealed to us in the New Testament. God isn't interested. He met Israel where they were at, but he is not a God that dwells in temples, right? Nor is he served by human hands, Paul says, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath in them and everything. So Paul could have just started right off the bat quoting scripture, but the problem is, is they don't believe the Bible, right? It's totally foreign uh, to them. So he started with reason. I've heard people say that we should circumvent reason when we're sharing the gospel because it's the power of the gospel that gets people. Yes, it is the power of the gospel that saves, but the Bible never tells us to circumvent reason. Paul always used persuasive tactics when he presented the gospel. He tried to persuade them. What he did is he realized there was power behind his persuasion that God and the Holy Spirit were working as he tried to persuade uh, people. So he started with reason. He reasoned with them. I believe it, it, apologetics is, is important in our day. Some people don't like it. I don't know if you've ever heard of apologetics. It does not mean an apology like we're saying we're sorry for our faith. Apologetics is a defense of, of the faith. And I believe that it's in, in, important. Uh, I think the reason a lot of people don't like it is because the attitudes that are often involved in apologetics, right? And so the attitude is the problem, not the device, right? 
It's us, you know, the way we, because we can't handle, you know, having discussions with people and we get all bent out of, of shape and we get angry and upset, you know, which says more about us than it does them. And we get upset and bent out of shape. And that's the reason a lot of people don't look at it like apologetics. They just look at it as arguing. No, that's the arguer, right? Apologetics isn't the problem. Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So the first part is, is every believer, right? I, I've already said, we're not, a, we're not all Apostle Pauls, we're not Peters, we're not all pastors, right? But we all, every single one of us, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. You need to know why you believe what you believe. My goodness, by any means, and I could be like shaking up a person's faith here, and that's not my point, but you need to know why you believe what you believe. Don't borrow our faith. Don't borrow your parents' faith just because they told you what to believe or you were raised a certain way. The worst way you can go through life is like, I believe this just because my parents told me. And man, there are really good reasons we believe what we believe. It's not a blind faith. There's reasons. Yes, it boils down to faith, right? But there are reasons we believe what we believe. I encourage you to seek those out. So we are always, we are to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, but do it with gentleness and respect. That's the second part. It's the attitude. It's not apologetics. So Paul goes on. So he says, you know, God isn't a God that, that's, um, um, you know, that dwells within temples made by man. It's not served by human hands. Uh, he doesn't need anything. He gave life to all mankind. And he says, verse 26, and he made from one man, now he's like getting into the Bible, right? He's getting into scripture. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should all seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. I mean, I found that statement right there that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way uh, towards him and find him. I found that very comforting. Because what that tells me is that we were all, all of us, we were made to seek God and to find him. And so that tells me that if you seek, you will find. We were all created to seek God and find him. God doesn't leave anyone without the opportunity. Paul says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, this is really trippy what Paul does here. He says, for in him, we live and move and have our being. He quotes a pagan poet. And even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed, we are his offspring. He quotes another pagan poet. What in the world is Paul doing there? Again, Paul isn't compromising. He's finding common ground. All truth is God's truth. Can you, can you admit that, right? This is one of the things I always say, like in politics with like, uh, I'm going to take the two like controversial figures, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, right? And we get, people get so much hate for Donald Trump or Barack Obama that if they like chocolate ice cream, they're going to like vanilla ice cream. And the idea is like, they could never say anything that's true. You got to, and that's a dangerous place to be. That's where we get in our, our arguing these days, whether it's politics or religion or whatever. We can't acknowledge truth about our enemies. We cannot acknowledge that they get anything right. So whatever they say is, is, is falsehood. Paul didn't do this, right? He looked for common ground. He didn't compromise, right? He wasn't saying our religions are the same, our faiths are the same. He found 
common ground. He says, okay, you guys can acknowledge in him we live and move and have our being. I'm sure the Stoics could relate with, with, with that. And even as some of your own poets have said, for indeed, we are his offspring. We are created by God. And as, 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 uh, as Christians, we recognize that in one sense, everybody is the offspring of God, right? But we've been alienated by sin, and then we become adopted as children through Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul is acknowledging. All truth is God's truth. He could have just laid it right into him. I mean, he could have just laid into him, but he found common ground. He could have been like those megaphone preachers, but he didn't do that. It's easier to have a hard conversation when the walls start to, to come down. And when you listen to people, when you relate to people, right, those, those walls, they start to feel like they're in a, a, a safer place and it's okay, right, to talk. And then you can have those hard, hard conversations. Here comes the hard conversation. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means, what does that mean? Just have a change of mind, a change of posture. Stop looking at God the same way. Times of ignorance God has overlooked, and now he's revealed himself, and I'm revealing him to you. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So all this talk about resurrection and the day of judgment, those would have been very strange words um, to the uh, Athenians. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. What's interesting at first is like, oh, yeah, he's getting through to some of these guys. We'll hear you again about this. But it says that Paul went out of their midst, and actually he leaves Athens, and like in the rest of the Bible, you don't hardly hear anything about Athens after this. Like he just kind of, he, he kind of leaves and nothing else is, 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 is mentioned. He didn't hang around. He didn't stay there in Athens. So it's possibly some of them were really curious, but it's possibly that's part of their culture and they're like, hey, let's, this is something new to my ears. Let's, let's talk more about this new God of yours, you know. But the good news is, is some men joined him and believed. Among those were Dionysus, the Areopagite. And this guy had to be a prominent figure because uh, he was an official in the Areopagus. Um, you had to be over uh, 60 years in age. So he was at least 60 years old and you had to be well-schooled, Right. Uh, tradition says, I don't know if this is true, that he was the first bishop of Athens and that he was later martyred. If that's the same guy, there was a bishop of Athens that was, that was martyred named uh, Dionysus. And a woman, a woman named Damaris, obviously she was prominent because they named her, but we're not sure who that is. Some suggest that it's his wife, but probably not. Uh, and then others with them. So we don't know how many, but there were others. It doesn't seem like it's a whole, whole lot, you know? It doesn't seem like the day of Pentecost when 3,000 came to the Lord, but there were some. Paul did what he was supposed to. He scattered the seed. He preached the word, and the power of the gospel did its, its work. But Paul ultimately decided to move on. I wonder if this experience uh, influenced Paul's thinking in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, to the Corinthian church, he says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, understand when he's talking to the Corinthians, they are Greeks. <laughs> they are also those that are interested in this, you know, wisdom and eloquency and, and so forth. Paul had uh, decided that his focus would be nothing but the gospel. His end goal would always be Jesus. He wouldn't get caught up in that. The gospel is not the latest fad. It's not the latest fad. And that's something that I think, uh, that's a message for us that we need to be careful in our culture. I'm somebody who likes to be open-minded. I love to learn and forever growing and I seek to understand and, and learn new things. But we need to be careful. Timothy Keller says, having an open mind does not mean it is open at both ends right? We need to be rooted in our faith, right? We learn, we understand, we grow. But having an open mind does not mean that it should be open at both ends. We should know why we believe, what we believe, and why we believe it. Another thing I noticed, and man, time got away from me. Sorry, guys. Um, Paul he observed this, this inscription to the unknown God as he walked around. He, he, he recognized the cultural context around him. As we were driving, ironically enough, when we were driving to the Areopagus, I noticed some gra graffiti that was on the side of the wall, on the side of a wall. There's graffiti in different places just like it is here. And it said, save lives, kill cops. And I thought that was interesting for a number of reasons, but I thought that was interesting because we think our context is so unique, like all the, you know, the police friction that we have here. And here I am halfway around the world, and there's graffiti that says, kill, kill cops. It's the same thing, right? And so we apply, we apply those things to our culture and what's going on here, but the same thing is happening. You know what it tells me? It tells me that the, the devil is up to the same tricks in different contexts. So be aware of that as you go out and, and minister. I remember our, our, our guide in Turkey, an awesome tour guide, he said he was encouraging us. He's like, man, if you get the opportunity, keep traveling. Because one of the things you'll notice when you travel is, is when you go out and you touch, feel, and see people and engage the world around you, you realize they're just like us. And we're all just the same. And those walls start to come down, right? And it creates empathy and love for other people, right, that are different from us. And that got me pumped up. But one of the things seeing this graffiti also taught me is like, man, the brokenness is the same worldwide too, around the world. And that there these, these, these spiritual forces are at work worldwide. And so I just encourage you, know where the real battle lies, right? These spiritual strongholds. As we get ready to close, I want to ask the question, are you ministering? Right, that's what, that's what we see today is Paul, how he craftedly and creatively um, ministered to the people of Athens. And we too are called to, to be ministers of the gospel, right? Not like Paul, right? We might not be overseas missionaries, but in our context and where we're at, we are called. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Praise the Lord Jesus I love that, you know. If I was to ever get a, a tattoo for some reason, that would be it, you know. 
Because that's who I am. I love that. I love that verse. But then go on. What does he say after that? So now I'm a new creation. Scott's a new creation. All this is from God, Paul says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, right? We were alienated. We were estranged from God. And he brought us back into relationship with him. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ's in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Our calling as the church is to make God known among the nations. That's what we're called. Like Sam, you're not called to make God known among the nations. You're a part of the church, the greater church who is called to make God known among the nations. It's all of us working Together, we've been reconciled, and now we have been given the ministry of reconciliation to boil it down. Reconciled people reconcile people. Reconciled people reconcile people. You have the same ministry as Paul. And so it's important that we as believers, when we leave here, you know, we always send, we go out as missionaries. You know, that's our benediction every time, the blessing that, you know, we go out full of the Holy Spirit and, and minister to the world around us. It's important that we pay close attention to that world around us. See where God is moving. I, I, I like to say that, that God is already on mission. You know, I see myself, oh, I'm on mission, and I am, but really it's God that's on mission, and I'm, I'm following along. I'm tagging along. I'm going with him. You know, he's leading the way. He's already doing something in the world. He invites me to be a part of it, Right? And so it's important that we listen for where God is moving. We see this world through spiritual eyes, and then we, we, we engage it. We engage this world. We, we can't afford to remain silent. Jesus did not remain silent. He didn't defend himself, right? Anytime he was put in a position where he had to defend himself, yes, he shut his mouth, but he definitely defined himself, and he defined his heavenly father. He was self-differentiated. We are called to engage the world around us. So it's important that we, we get equipped. The Bible says that this is, this is the place right here, what we're doing on Sunday morning, and this isn't all, but this is, this is one of the ways that we're equipped, right? He says he's called the, the ministers and the evangelists and the pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. All of us as the church, you're doing the work, you're the ministers. We're the ministers, right? It's all of us. And so we're called to engage the world around us. So what are the ways that we get equipped? Well, this is one way, right? Thursdays is another way. Not doing a plug, but that's just the reality when we come together. If you get together at Starbucks or whatever, that's one way to get, get equipped. Your Bible, like, that's a wonderful way to get equipped. I think even uh, speaking of apologetics, right? You get in your Bible and you're going to, you're going to learn things and you're going to grow in such a way that God's going to be able to use you to explain why you believe what you believe, right? Even for people who don't believe the Bible. Uh, another, another way is um, through apologetics. Man, there's some great books out there um, uh, on apologetics, on the defense of the faith. And there's a few of them. The Reasons for God by Tim Keller, that's a great book. Um, Mere Christianity, classic book by C.S. Lewis. Another uh, modern classic, I guess, is The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He was an atheist. Um, uh, there's a good movie on Netflix, too, about that as well. But uh, he was a journalist who seeked to prove God wrong. He was aggravated because his wife 
came to the faith. She got saved. <laughs> she got full of Jesus, and he wanted to um, shut her up and shut her down, and so he sought to prove uh, prove Christ to be a fraud, and he couldn't do it, and he ended up coming to faith uh, through her witness. Uh, cold case Christianity is one that I'm in the middle of right now. That's a newer one, um, a real good uh, apologetic book. Uh, I haven't read, but I've heard real, uh, good things about uh, Humble Apologetics uh, by John Stackhouse. And there's a ton of others, but those are some of the top ones uh, that are out there uh, right now. So if you want to take a picture of that or, or whatnot or ask me later, um, if you want one of those resources, they're there. But engage the world around you. And it may look different for you than it is for me, but I, I just encourage you, like, engage it. I... I like to engage social media. A lot of people hate that, <laughs> don't like it at all. And that's okay. That's cool, right? That's cool. And, but I think the reason we don't like it is, again, because of attitudes, right? And so I make a, I, I like, I, for me, it's a resource. I'm really good with technology and I like to engage. I've got this platform and, and I engage it. I don't do it by, you know, like Peter, like cutting off the ear of the soldier, right? I try not to do it like James and John calling down fire out of heaven, right? And so it's good practice for me, too, to walk in the Spirit as I'm engaging people and love them, right? And so that's one of the ways that, uh, that I, I like to do it. And um, so I encourage you, if you have a problem with your, your temper or, or, or frustration and engaging, hey, pray about it, you know. Uh, seek, seek out help for it. Even these spiritual formation courses, Faith Walking Region, that, that Ariel was a part of, that's, that's one of the reasons that they're there is to, you know, uh, help us to get healthy spiritually, right? So that we can engage for our purpose, so that we can engage um, the world. Um, people might not behave the way that you would like them to, but that's okay. I mean, Jesus was mocked, right? Ultimately crucified. Paul was stoned. So that's nothing new, right? You see your friends engaging the world and you see bad results. That doesn't mean they're doing something wrong. You know, they're responsible for loving people, right, and doing it with, with gentleness and respect. But we're not responsible for the, the world's reaction. You can be the most kind, loving person. The only way to stop persecution is to not engage. That's the only way you're going to stop it. Because the devil, he hates Christians, and he hates Christ, and he hates the message of reconciliation. And so if you just want to not engage, then... That's the only way you're going to ever avoid rejection. I like to say, unfortunately, it's sometimes the ministry of rejection as well. Jesus sends us out to engage the world around us. As one blogger wrote, it's just how we should roll as Christians. Let's think about that.